0: To some, he was the greatest defensive catcher of all time. To others, he deserved a Hall of Fame induction. But to his teammates, he was nothing but trouble. To history, he is the first household name in professional baseball to have committed murder. What drove him to such a heinous crime? And how should we remember him? We'll discuss on today's episode of Rounders, a history of baseball in America. (laughs) Hello everybody and welcome to the show. I am as always your host Jeff Lambert. I want to thank you for joining me for today's episode. Your support always means just the world to me and thank you for tuning in. You know, baseball has had its share of publicity related to player crimes throughout its history. And if you caught the name of the episode, I didn't say Martin Bergman was baseball's first murderer. That designation actually belongs to another player. But His heinous act certainly was the first example of a well-known baseball name that was splashed across newspapers across the country for such a crime as murder. He is baseball's first star to commit such a crime. So who was he as a player? What drove him to such a heinous act? And what are the reasons why he might have taken such an action? Today, we're going to explore the life and crime of one Martin Bergen, and we're going to break it down into four parts. Part one is going to cover his childhood and early years as a baseball player. Part two is going to cover his career as a high-profile name in baseball. Part three is going to cover his horrible crime and the country's reaction to it. And part four is going to discuss the possible reasons he committed this act and his legacy, how we should remember him. So, I will make sure to post in the show notes exactly when each of these parts begins. Let's join our journey to discover baseball's first star who committed murder. Martin Burgeon was born in 1871 in a town called North Brookfield, Massachusetts. It's a small town in Worcester County. It's one that I'm actually very familiar with when I coached basketball That was a town that my team often went to play in. It's a very rural area, very beautiful area. Lots of hiking, lots of outdoor activities there. The people there are very nice. It's a nice, nice town. It's a nice area in Massachusetts. This is where this gentleman named Martin Bergen was born. His parents were Irish immigrants, and they had arrived in the United States shortly after the end of the Civil War. Now, to make a living, his dad assembled shoes at a local factory, and that's how the family basically supported themselves. Martin was one of six children, and he was one of two boys out of those six. He was born, I believe, the third child, right in the middle. He started playing baseball early on in his life. When he was a teenager, he signed on to play for the local baseball club in North Brookfield, and he quickly made friends with another teenager that was on the squad who was also a North Brookfield native, known as the Great Connie Mack. These two came up together. By the way, the name of the club that they played for was the Brookfields. Even as a teenager, Martin developed a very quick reputation with his teammates for being a less than supportive member of the squad. He had behavior issues, goes all the way back to the beginning of his career. He was known to obsess over minor problems, he wouldn't let things go if they came up, and he would often argue with teammates and coaches at the drop of a hat. But despite this off-field behavior, Martin showed a really rare talent on defense, especially at the catcher position. He also developed a reputation for being a less-than-average hitter, and that followed him throughout his career but he certainly wasn't a horrible hitter. And I'll show you how the stats bear that out. But those traits really came to define his career later on. But the one that really stuck out were his catching skills. He was so good, even as a teenager, That word spread all the way across the state of Massachusetts to some of the pro clubs that there was a kid that was available that had very high skill level in this position that not only a lot of players didn't like playing because of the danger associated with it, it was a very difficult position to play and still is. So Martin played for his town club, the Brookfields, until he turned 20 years old. And it was then that he received a letter from the Salem Witches, Who were a baseball club, a professional baseball club, as part of the New England League. Now, just to give you an idea again of how um, how much quality Martin must have brought in terms of talent, Salem and North Brookfield, both towns in Massachusetts, are roughly eighty-four miles apart. So that means that Martin was that good in an age where letters and telegraphs were the main mass communication. Uh, mediums available. So his exploits reached just that far in only a five or a six year span. So Martin, when he received the message, happily signed a contract and he traveled to Salem to begin his pro career. In his first season with the Witches, Martin posted respectable numbers, especially for a player in the dead ball era. He hit 247 in just 59 games, and he played catcher for all of those games but he only played one season for Salem. Now, did that bad attitude we talked about that he was known for during his teenage years also rub his teammates the wrong way in Salem? Well, it might be, and it might be why he signed somewhere else, but I couldn't find a definitive answer to this. There's there's no record of such things. But there could have been another reason, a very plausible reason, why Martin only lasted one season with Salem. You see, after every season... It was, throughout his career, it was, it was common for him to travel back to North Brookfield. And he would spend fall and winter on his childhood farm with his family. And during the fall months, he would often rejoin his team, the Brookfields, and he would play. Now, when he went back, after that first season, he did begin at least conversing with a young lady in town whose name was Hattie Gaines. And she had recently moved to North Brookfield to work at the local flour mill. They well, I I guess things progressed, I guess you could say, as they conversed. And that following summer, they got married. So I would venture a guess that he had a desire to be closer to North Brookfield due to this blossoming love interest that he had. Regardless, after that 1892 season, he did not return to Salem to play for the second season. Instead, for the 1893 season, and that was the summer where he got married. He signed a contract with the Northampton Baseball Club, and this was another uh, professional club. But in this town in Massachusetts, there was only a 35 mile distance between North Brookfield and Northampton, so certainly a much easier place to head back to, maybe even after games or on weekends. So, even though he made this move to be with his uh, love interest possibly, what I'm proposing, the talent in this league was less than the Salem Witches who played in the New England League, which was a top professional league during this time. So his stats that happened when he played for Northampton during that season, that has been lost to history but he must have played so well that he ended up signing on for 3 games that season in Pennsylvania even further away from say and then Salem and he played 3 games with the Wilkes-Barre Coal Barons and they played for the very prominent Eastern League so his skill must have been in high regard and still continued to travel so we know that Martin has established himself as a worthwhile catcher We know that news of his skill is spreading to other leagues, and he's on the cusp of becoming a big name on the national stage. But before most of that occurred, he and his wife, just to set up the stage, they bought a little farm in North Brookfield after they got married. They named it the Snowball Farm, and they began life as a family, and they eventually had three children together. That concludes part one of Martin's story. Martin had two years of big club baseball under his belt. He spent his first year in Salem, and he spent one year in Northampton, along with those three games that he played for Wilkes-Barre. In 1894, he got a message from his old buddy, Connie Mack. Mack was now the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates in the National League, top league in the country. He drafted Martin Burgeon, And initially, Burgeon was on the big league club, but there was a roster crunch. Due to the numbers, and because he was one of the younger players on the roster, Connie Mack assigned him to their minor league team mid-season. Sounds simple, right? Happens all the time in modern baseball. The problem was that this practice wasn't allowed yet, and when Connie Mack assigned him to the minor league club, it voided Martin's contract with the Pirates, the big league club. So Martin ended up staying for the rest of the 1894 season with the minor league club that he was assigned to, which was in Lewiston, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, Lewiston, Maine of the New England League. Excuse me. I got my Lewistons mixed up. So he's back in the New England league, but he now does not have a major league contract to speak of. He's back in the minors. He is playing in the, in, the, in the New England league again, which is certainly a step up from Northampton. And he played very well. He hit .321 in 97 games. And of course, he was excellent as catcher. So we see already Martin's road to the National League. It's going slow, but he's finally getting there. And he did get his big break in 1895 when the Washington Senators drafted him. And they started him with their minor league club in Kansas City. Now notice the difference there. It was legal during this time to assign a player to the minor league club before the season started, not during mid-season. And that's why his contract had been voided in Philadelphia the year before. So Martin starts off the season on the minor league squad He plays really well for Kansas City, but those behavioral issues start to kick in again. He got in trouble quickly with his manager on the club, and the manager openly described Martin as being moody, as constantly starting arguments with him in the dugout, and just being a general thorn in his side. To give you an example of that, during one game in Minneapolis, Martin got into an argument with the coach and decided that he was just going to leave. He just left the club. He just walked out and he disappeared for a week before showing up again. Now, why would they put up with that? Why would the Kansas City manager put up with it? Why would the big league club put up with that kind of behavior from a player? And it really comes down to the fact that Martin was just that good of a ball player. In that season, he hit 372 and he scored 118 runs. And at the end of the season, This, you know, he played incredibly well. He made it to the end of the season, but since he was in the minors, he was eligible for drafting the next season by another pro club. And this time another team stepped in and decided to start Martin off right in the national league in the big, in the big time. And that team was the Boston bean eaters of the national league. So Martin on this kind of whirlwind tour ends up back in Massachusetts For the 1896 season and he's starting the season on the big league club now martin's time with boston that's really when he became a household name and the team was willing to work with his reputation which preceded him they knew that they were drafting a clubhouse distraction they knew what washington and philadelphia had dealt with and that may have been the reason why he lasted longer with boston than any other club Just to give you an example of the commitment that was there because of the talent that he displayed before the season even started, the Bean Eaters team owner, Arthur Soden, traveled to North Brookfield, all the way to North Brookfield to the snowball farm where Martin and his wife lived, and he sat down with Martin, and he told him he was valued, and he was going to make sure that he was treated well by Boston's managers and his teammates, and Martin responded to that. He showed up on day one, and he had four very good seasons for the bean eaters as their catcher. Let me give you a rundown of what he accomplished during these four years. In his first year, he hit 269 with 47 RBI, In 1897, he hit 248, and he helped the team to win the National League pennant, first place at the end of the season. And on top of that, in addition to winning the pennant, we don't really have a World Series yet, that's that's not a thing, but they did have something called the Temple Cup, and I think I'm going to do a future episode on this. But basically, the league's first place and second place teams would play each other in a series in addition to the pennant. So you could win the pennant for coming in first place, and then the first-place and second-place teams played each other in a seven-game series. And in that season, in Martin's second season, the Bean Eaters played the Baltimore Orioles in that cup, and they ended up losing 4-1. to But they won the pennant, which was the big deal during this time. So things are getting better for Boston. Things are getting better for Martin. In 1898, he comes back. He caught 117 games that season. Think about that. That is an astronomical number for a catcher to catch. And he batted 280 with 60 RBI. Best season of his career. Boston wins the pennant again, but there was no Temple Cup that year. And this is where we see that cup start to fade into history. But they didn't win that year, but now they've won two pennants in a row. Now in 1899, Boston is steamrolling. It looks like they're going to win three pennants in a row. But Martin only played 72 games that season. He still hit 258 and he knocked in 34 RBI. But during the season, he had a surgery for a hip issue, and that cut down his season. So let's just take a minute to talk about Martin's real fame, because I've given you the stats that obviously the team succeeded with him on the squad. We know that he hit uh, admirably for a player during the dead ball era, but let's talk about his real strength, and that really comes down to his defense. His defensive ability is what defined him as a baseball player, and not just as an okay player, but one of the greatest players of his generation, if not the greatest catcher of his generation. Martin is considered, not by me, but by baseball's greatest journalists and minds to be one of the, like I said, if not the best catcher during his time in professional baseball. He was known to have a cannon for an arm and very quick reflexes. His friend, Connie Mack is on record saying that Martin's the only catcher that he ever saw throw guys out at second while still on his knees. That's how powerful his arm was. Martin was also known for his incredible plate blocking abilities. You know, that ability to be able to bring in a throw and keep the runner from third from touching home to score. So he was, very uh, strategic about his placement. And remember, he was doing this at a time where he's taking a lot of physical toll blocking that plate. And catchers didn't wear protective gear really during this time. It wasn't a given. And we're talking not even shin guards really during this time. Remember, we're in 1899, 1896 through 1899. Hall of Famer, future of Hall of Famer and a fellow pro ball player during Martin's time, Jesse Burkett said, quote, as a catcher, Martin was the best the world ever produced. No man acted with more natural grace as a ball player end quote. Just to add on to it, a sports writer in 1898 wrote that when he did a profile on Martin that, quote, Martin Burgeon is a kingpin of catchers, and without him, the Bostons would probably be in second place or even lower on the ladder, end quote. William Knack, who is a baseball writer? Was a baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. He said in 2001, looking at Burgeon's career, that Burgeon was quote a nimble fielder with a bullwhip arm who could snap the ball to second without so much as even moving his feet. End quote. So Martin, in addition to these stellar accounts of his defensive ability, helped lead Boston to two pennants, four top of the standing finishes and the club looked poised to keep going to compete and keep their dominance in the National League. And a lot of that success was due to Martin. But there was only one problem lingering in the shadows, and that was Martin. Let's take a break for the seventh-inning stretch, and when we come back, we're going to discuss the crime that Martin is synonymous with. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's Jeff, the founder and host of the show, and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the baseball history podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, including our newest show, This Week in Baseball History, where we take a look at the major stories that happened throughout baseball's past and how they relate to America's pastime today. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events such as the rounders fantasy baseball league. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation, just once a year, we have an annual plan that will save you money over the monthly fee. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a rounders starting nine tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting Nine member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rounders, the history of baseball in America. Today, we're talking about Martin Burgin, the first star in baseball to commit murder. And we're going to talk about what we've already talked about, I should say, about uh, his childhood. We talked about how he came up through the lower leagues, and made it to prominence in the National League. He built a reputation on the national stage as a top talent, as a catcher. He helped the Boston Bean Eaters win two pennants. But 1899 was the last season he played pro ball, just four seasons. Why is that? What happened? Well, Martin had this history, and we know, of being difficult to play with. And that went all the way back to his teenage years in North Brookfield. This never really changed. And his dark side really grew as he aged. And it really reached till it was almost out of control by 1899. When he was at the top of his career. When he was a household name. In his first season with Boston in 1896, the the distractions were mild enough. You know, his dugout uh, teammates were quick to get really tired of the arguments that he would start up all the time. The newspaper picked up on stories of him being a distraction. There was an article from 1896 from a Boston publication that said, quote, Martin Burgeon, the young backstop, is unpopular with his fellow players. He is a sullen, sarcastic chap, never associates with the ball players, and always nurses a fancied grievance. His disposition handicaps his player talents, end quote. As another example of Martin's continuing behavioral issues with the club, in 1898, he was on a road game trip with Boston in St. Louis. Martin got into an argument with his teammate, Vic Willis, and he slapped him across the face in front of the rest of the team at a breakfast. In that same season, in 1898, another teammate reported that Martin had come to him and threatened to club him to death at the end of the year. An anonymous Boston player also leaked to the press that, quote, Martin has made trouble with a good many of us boys and we just give him a wide berth. But he's a ball player and once we get into a game, personal feelings are set aside in admiration of the artist for such he is, end quote. And that really summarizes the the issues that dogged Martin throughout his career. But his exploits, they just, they became too much... For Boston to handle and that went into the 1899 season his last season that was his last season in the in the pros well his last season overall as a baseball player and things got really bad that season and this kind of leads into what this episode's driving towards so we're in his fourth season with Boston it's 1899 at the beginning of the season Martin finds out that his son died unexpectedly from diphtheria he was crushed. He left the club for two weeks, and when he came back, he was even more withdrawn and moody towards his teammates than he was before. It was noted that he avoided his teammates altogether, even when they tried to console him over his loss, and he was heard saying to others that his teammates were making jokes about his son's death behind his back. To make things even worse, early on in the season, Martin had hip surgery that caused him to miss even more time that season, and rumors started to swirl that he had started to drink heavily. But that's disputed because other teammates said that he was a teetoler, that he didn't consume alcohol at all, and he was morally against it. So take that as you will. But whatever the cause was, during that 1899 season, he started exhibiting some very strange behavior. He started making wild claims about his safety at the end of the season in the middle of a tight pennant race. He just walked off the team train before a road trip and he went back home to North Brookfield. A Boston reporter had to go visit him at his farm and convince him to come back to finish out the season. A few weeks after that, Martin just disappeared for several days, missed more games, and then he just showed up one game later on in full catcher's gear, ready to go. The team president told his teammates to avoid Martin for their own safety, and at the end of the 1899 season, several Boston players came forward and said that they would not come back and play next season if Martin was on the squad. So Martin went into the offseason with a big question mark on whether he was going to be back in Boston the next season for several reasons. Not only were his teammates absolutely done with his behavior, but he also had that hip surgery. And certainly that's a concern for any team when they're taking on a player and paying money for him. But it was rumored that the New York Giants, one of the rivals to Boston during this time, they were planning on swooping in and signing Martin if he became available. So take that with what you will, but it never made it that far because in the off-season after 1899, the unthinkable happened. In January of 1900, while at home with his family on the Snowball Farm in North Brookfield, Martin Burgen and his entire family were found dead one morning. The police and the medical examiners labeled the case a murder-suicide. The report stated that Martin used an axe, To kill his wife and two children, then pulled out a straight razor and slit his own throat. His children were three and six years old. The neighbors, when interviewed, were shocked that this had occurred. They stated that they had spoken to Martin in recent days and that he had seemed unusually cheerful, that he seemed pleasant when he was talking to them. They talked about how much he doted on his wife and he seemed so devoted to his family and was always seen outside playing with his kids when he came back to the farm. Burgeon and his family were laid to rest together at St. Joseph's Cemetery right there in North Brookfield. His old friend Connie Mack helped raise funds to erect a statue in that cemetery to Burgeon. but the media coverage did not match Mack's sentiment. Across the country, there were headlines that were run that reported Martin as a man that was subject to fits of melancholy or showing signs of insanity. Only two teammates ended up showing up for his funeral. And on top of that, none of his fellow pro players attended the funeral as well. Connie Mack was one of those two. His pallbearers were all young men from town who had played for the local team. They weren't his teammates on the pro level. They certainly weren't close to him. They were just associates. The service itself was brief. There were few words spoken. This was recounted by baseball historian John Thorne. Certainly the end was indicative of Martin's life, that there was not a lot of closeness there, and certainly the heinousness of the crime also uh, played into this as well. So you think about this horrible event and you ask yourself, what happened? What would cause somebody to do this? Someone who seemed like a loving father, a devoted husband, who certainly had his own personal demons, but took a step to do something so horrible. What would cause that? Why don't we take a look at this and see what history has been able to piece together in our final part. So when we look at Martin's murder and, you know, suicide, suicide, everything together, it really, it doesn't make much sense. And crimes of this severity, they often don't. And yet there were certain warning signs that we see now that seem to point to Martin's actions being about more than just a random mental break or a, a point of, a, of an emotional high for him. And let's look at the evidence and see what could have possibly occurred that would cause this to occur. So, We have a Dr. Carl Salzman, who in recent years has looked at Martin Bergen's uh, career, medical records, all of the documentation around him, and has made a determination himself of what may have been the state of Martin before this occurred. Now, before I continue, Dr. Carl Salzman is a psychiatrist. He works currently at the Beth Israel Medical Center. He's been a teaching member of the Harvard Medical School. So this, this gentleman is certainly uh, very well-experienced, uh, an expert in his field. And he says that after examining Martin Bergen's story, he has concluded that Martin likely suffered from both schizophrenia and manic depression. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, schizophrenia is marked by a lot of different behaviors, but probably ones that stick out the most is when someone has a clear break from reality, and they descend into sort of this fantasy and delusion. And when you look at the accounts of Martin, especially during those final two years playing for Boston, it seems to point towards this. So we know that Martin had a reputation for being moody and withdrawn, and that could certainly point to the manic depression, but the mental break that descended into schizophrenia, that probably occurred due to two reasons. Number one, obviously the unexpected death of his son, but the second one could have tied into the hip surgery that he received at the beginning of the 1899 season. So why don't we start with the hip surgery? Why would that have played into this? Well, we do know that, like I said, in January of 1899, right before the season started, Martin had surgery to remove an abscess from his hip. But the surgery was a little different because the surgery lasted for four hours and he was under heavy anesthesia the whole time. This is not modern medicine we're talking about. That dosage or length of time and with the the chemicals used, that that's a lot of time for someone to be put under and that seemed to affect him mentally when he woke up and came out of the surgery because both his doctor and family noted that they had never they never saw him really recover mentally from the operation so there's that then 3 months later at the beginning of the season martin's son dies we know that he left for 2 weeks And we look at the reports of his behavior after, and they certainly point to a very much accelerated uh, sense of uh, not being in control of himself. So let's look at some of that. I already mentioned some of it, but there's even more. He proclaimed that his teammates, in addition to making fun of his son's death, were hounding him constantly, that at least four of them constantly were shouting, strike him out when he was at bat. He just had this general sort of attitude that his teammates were out to get him. He started to report that his manager was actively avoiding him. He started telling people in his life that he was concerned that enemies were out to try to poison him. He started sitting sideways in chairs so he could get a better view of who was around him. He would walk in a way where he was constantly looking every which way, every few seconds, because... It was reported, again, that he was telling people that he was concerned that assassins could approach him from either side at any minute and kill him, and he wanted to be ready to be able to get away from it or defend himself. At a road game in October, after he had left the club and, and had managed to, to be convinced to come back, he was actually pulled out of a game by his manager because while he was in the field catching, he began to dodge pitches that were thrown at him instead of catching them. And so his manager pulled him out of the game and said, what's going on? And he told his manager that he was dodging knife thrusts from an invisible assailant. He told his personal doctor that after the last game of the season, that a man had come up to him and congratulated him on a fine performance and had given him a cigar. But Martin said that he was too afraid to smoke that cigar because he believed that it was poisoned. Then we see the pattern of absence, where in addition to leaving, you know, for those two weeks after his son's death, he would just disappear. He'd play a few games, and then he'd disappear. He'd go home. He'd come back again. And this sort of behavior just became regular during the season. Now, Martin seemed to have a sense that things were spiraling out of control for him, and he reportedly tried to get help because he knew things were getting worse. He sought out his local minister for support, and he also began visiting the local physician in North Brookfield, and he told his physician things that came out after. He was saying things like that he couldn't remember much of what happened throughout the entire 1899 season, that he couldn't recall notes of where he was and what games it had happened and, and, and plays that he made or how he traveled. All that was mostly a blur to him. He told the doctor that he, that he felt he, quote, wasn't right in the head or, quote, was having strange ideas. His doctor tried to prescribe him some bromides to be able to deal with his uh, with his mental decline. And bromides were like an early 20th century medication that was used as a sedative. It was actually used most commonly in World War One for sal- soldiers to be able to uh, control their sexual urges. Um, and so he was, he was given, or he was prescribed bromides to try and uh, act as a sedative to be able to calm down his mind. But he refused to take those pills. And when he was asked why, he convinced that he was worried his wife was trying to poison him. And he said, this is is a direct quote, he said, uh, quote, I thought someone in the National League had found out that you, speaking to the doctor, were my family physician and had arranged to give me some poison. I did not take it from my wife because I didn't wish hers to be the hand that poisoned me, end quote. You know, for me, as someone who has known people with schizophrenia in my own life, this really hit home for me because Martin's behaviors sound really familiar to people I've seen struggle with this illness. So to put it into perspective, Dr. Salzberg's findings, it would certainly help explain the mental dissent that Martin exhibited, especially in 1899. And then we have that, that heinous crime that occurred to To his kids, you know, and especially to his wife. And as a father of a young child, I just, I I can't imagine. And that brings us to the question, how should we remember Martin? Is he a murderer without conscience? Was he a player that was plagued by his own demons? What do we do with this information that we've gone over with his life? Well, I think that we can undoubtedly say that Martin was a talent that stands apart, even in his own era. I mean, he even received a few Hall of Fame votes in 1937 through 1939, but it never really went anywhere because of the obvious issues with baseball's character clause for any Hall of Fame inductees as a murderer. So that never really went anywhere. But his talent is obviously unquestionable. He's one of the top players of his era. But the crime isn't. But, you know, to look at Martin is to look at a guy who obviously needed mental health support but he lived in a time where there really wasn't any mental health support to speak of. So he suffered and he declined until the moment he committed this unspeakable act to an innocent wife and innocent children. So if Martin is to be remembered in any positive light, which it's hard to find, but maybe he should be an example of why baseball needs to attend to both the physical, emotional, and mental sides of their players. And that is really, I think, the key of what we can draw out of this, that that is so important. So that's the lesson I think we can learn from Martin. And that is Martin's story, as heinous as it is. Folks, I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I really enjoy every time you decide to join me. It means a lot just to see those listens pop up, that I'm doing something that you're enjoying Uh, If you'd like to leave me a good game tip, it's a way for me to be able to just get a little extra cash. I reinvest it right into the show. I'm saving up to be able to buy some different things for the show, including a better camera. I want to be able to add a custom URL for the show, a couple other things I'm working on. If you like the show and you just want kind of a no-strings-attached way to support the show, you can leave me a good game tip. In the description, you'll see my links to PayPal, Venmo, and the Cash app. You can certainly do that. You can also, which helps me a lot, just take a moment to leave a review on the podcast app that you use. Just leaving that review helps me get in front of new people that are searching for podcasts that discuss baseball or history. But most of all, you just deciding to listen and to be able to take part in learning more about baseball history and joining me in this conversation, that's what's most important. And I really thank you for that. So with that said, this ends our episode and we end in our customary way of me asking you to remember there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.